Thank you, Pastor Jeff, again, for leading us in communion and for Jordan as well for leading us in our worship thus far. And we'll continue that now. As we open up the word, I'd ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and we'll just be reading and doing two verses this morning, verses 11 and 12. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And it says, Beloved, I urge you as foreigners, as temporary residents, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation." May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. I know certainly in this last week especially, my appreciation for, for, the, for the book of First Peter has only increased. It's important to understand that as Peter writes this letter, he is, he's encouraging the believers who are scattered. He's giving them great comfort because they were facing some pretty extraordinary trials in their lives. This is prior to... The Roman persecution from the fire in AD 70. But these, leading up to that, these believers were facing some pretty intense trials. And so Peter is writing to them in the midst of their persecution. But as Peter writes this letter, it's really important to note that he does not see the trials of this life as an obstacle to our faith. Just understand that one more time. As Peter writes this, he does not see the trials of this life as an obstacle to our faith. In fact, he emphasizes the responsibility of every true believer to maintain a biblical perspective in the midst of the trials of life. His emphasis in this letter is the responsibility of every true believer to maintain a biblical perspective amidst the trials of life. And so... As we look at our passage this morning, I'd like to, to challenge you and keep this in mind. Um, this, this passage has everything from biblical Christianity through to evangelism, so keep this thing in mind. Are you continually abstaining from fleshly lusts and instead maintaining good deeds in order to glorify God and be a faithful testimony for Him? Keep that in mind as we look at our text this morning. But before we get to our passage... Context, context, context. It's important. So I'd like you to go all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 1. And I want to do a brief walkthrough so far so that we can great, gain a greater idea of our, of our passage this morning. I want to look at the, the prerequisites, if you like. All the way back in verse 1. He begins this letter very encouraging. He's reminding us of our hope as believers. He says, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia who are chosen. Peter, straight away, he acknowledges the facts that these folks really do. They reside as aliens. They reside as foreign citizens scattered with significant persecution during this time. He says, To those who are chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled 
with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's look at this verse for one second. This is the ultimate prerequisite to be able to face trials with all joy. If you are in Christ, if you are repentant of your sins and you are in Christ, you must understand that the reason you are a believer here this morning is because God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ and God the Holy Spirit were all involved in your life bringing you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't understand that, that you don't have a bearing in this life here today. But when you do come to understand the reality of God's work in the life of an unbeliever, that substance, that understanding, helps you to maintain a proper biblical perspective in the course of this life, no matter what trials we are to face. Peter continues on. He speaks of an inheritance that we have as believers. Verse 4 of chapter 1. He talks about an inheritance that we have that is imperishable and undefiled. It will not fade away. It reserved in heaven for you. It is an inheritance that cannot go away. This life, we're going to lose lots of stuff. I've lost lots of stuff. Anything can be taken away. Possession, people can be taken away. Just like that. But if that's where our hope is, if our hope is in these things that we, that we can lose, what is the point? It's so sad. Verse 6, and we start to see Peter's theme for his letter. He says, despite the various trials that they are facing, despite the many trials that you and I face here this morning, we can and must take great joy in our Lord Jesus Christ and the relationship that we have with him, the salvation that we have in him. He reminds us of our great hope. But as Peter progresses, he also reminds us of the responsibility that we have with being a believer Look at verse 13 quickly. He says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Keep your hope fixed completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know when he says, prepare your minds for action? You know what that's like? It's like, if you're in Christ, you better hang on. <laughs> because he's preparing, he's, he's the relationship that we have with him. We ought to keep sober we have to be well balanced about how we think about spiritual things. We have to have our hope completely fixed on the grace of God that is to come. In other words, if your life is just oriented to this world, you are going to be so messed up. But if your life is oriented towards glory, and you understand that you are not here for a time to, to accomplish all that you want to accomplish but rather you are here to accomplish God's purposes in anticipation of being with him with all, for all eternity. He gives us a challenge, verse 14. He says, Do not be conformed to former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but he says, Like the one who is holy who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, for it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So we understand as Christians, despite the trials of life, God is a holy God and that ought to be the passion and desire of our life to live and imitate that holiness in which he lived out himself. It ought to be the desire of our hearts. We don't do that perfectly, but it must be the desire of our hearts. It's interesting, he makes it clear. If you address the Father as one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear and trembling, while you stay on earth. Why? Because you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. 
Do you understand the cost of your own redemption? As our brother Lee prayed this morning, the cost of your redemption is massive. We cannot even begin to to fathom the cost of our own redemption. It's not as though it was just some exchange of money where, where God paid something and your soul is saved. He sent his son. His blood was spilt so that you could be saved. And that price we can never fully understand. As he progresses from there, he speaks of the power of the word of God, the living, enduring word of God. In chapter 2, he makes it clear that if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, that is, if you have come to biblical faith, then you will long for the word of God. It's not some assignment. Reading your Bible is not some assignment that we have to fulfill or or God's going to, to be mad at us. But the spiritual milk of the word is for a, is, this picture is for a person who has come to faith in Christ and the redemption that is found in him and sees the word as a great treasure, something to treasure and, and hold to every single day. This ought to be such a profound part of our lives. I think it's, it's crazy that as you and I go through the trials of life, how often is the word of God the first thing we put down? It ought to be a profound part of our lives. And Peter emphasizes the importance of the word of God. Then in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where our brother Jordan was preaching from a few weeks back. And he talks about Jesus Christ as though he is the great divide. When people come to Jesus, Jesus is called the living stone. And either people come to Jesus and look at him as the living stone and reject him. And ultimately, if they maintain that rejection, they will suffer an eternity separated from him. Or, for those of us who come to faith, you come to see Jesus as the living stone. He's the cornerstone in your life. And you become a part of what's called the spiritual building that God is creating so that you and I are learning to offer spiritual sacrifices to God which are acceptable to him through Jesus Christ. Verse 9 of chapter 2, it says, this is my wife's, favorite verse i think he says you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation for god's own possession why so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light for you were not a people but now you are a people of god you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy so he's saying for those of you who have come to faith in christ what's your objective in life Is your objective all about me? While we are here, it's our joy and privilege to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness. That ought to be the predominant feature of our lives. Not an add-on, not a maybe, not a as we feel we need to. Peter emphasizes if you are in the midst of trials or not, it's the object of those who have come to Christ as the living stone. If you are repentant of your sins and you have come to Christ in faith, It is your desire to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called you. We have a responsibility, however, to fulfill as as we are believers. And part of that responsibility is to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our first point this morning. But before we get to it, I want to ask a couple of pointed questions. The first one is this. Are you living your life generally in such a way that people see the consistency between what you profess to believe and how you live. 
I'm speaking to Christians here. If you are living your life in such a way that you say what you say you believe about God and about his word is clearly presented in the realities of your life. Hour by hour, day by day. Or is what you profess to believe a mere contradiction? Do you understand that if you call Jesus Lord, that is the master of your life, but yet don't do the things that he says, you're lying? That's blatant blatant hypocrisy. You can say you love God's word all day long, but if you have no time for it in your daily life, then there is a whole lot of other things that are more important than God's word. So is what you profess to believe consistent with the realities of your life? Furthermore, when you're in the midst of great difficulties of your life, do you still reflect what you claim to believe or is your practice in this life a contradiction? You know, a lot of people seem to be pretty happy with God when when things are going well, but when things get upturned or, or go the wrong way, or even begin to get challenging, a lot of people who profess Christ all of a sudden don't have that greater respect for him. But for the true believer, whether we are in the midst of trials or not, we are to demonstrate a faith that acknowledges who God is, put him in his rightful place, the fact that he is trustworthy in every respect. And thirdly, next question, is your life a faithful testimony to God to the faithful testimony of God to those unbelievers around you. I had a, a friend once who was working um, over in New Zealand. He spent five years working with this guy and during a discussion in lunchtime, um, the, the other guy said to him, oh, I didn't, I didn't know you were a Christian. Five years he'd spent working with this guy and that, that completely changed this guy's outlook on, on how he was to behave. He'd not been a faithful witness. Do you wear the colors on your sleeve as a Christian? Is your daily life a reflection of the salvation that you profess? These questions I want you to keep in mind as we look this morning. So we come to to verse 11. And Peter starts off with the word beloved or dear friends, you could say, or, or, or loved ones. It's a, it's a term of endearment and it's important because you think about the people he's writing to, they're, they're going through great difficulties. They're going through the most, face, they're beginning to face some of the most um, hardest challenges of their lives. But Peter's showing by, by the way he writes here that he legitimately cares for them. Dear friends, beloved, he wants to know that, he wants them to know that he actually cares. Yeah, I just think about that. When we're in the really deep waters of life and somebody comes up to us, it's not very helpful if they just say, get over it. There is a sense of compassion and care that Peter has for these people. But in doing that, he does not want to give them this sorry for yourself theology. He wants to give them the truth of God's word. And Peter's whole idea in this passage is he's calling suffering saints to abstain from fleshly lusts and maintain good deeds so that the unbelievers may be convicted and God will be glorified. You and I, as suffering saints, we must abstain from fleshly lusts and maintain good deeds so that believers will be convicted and God will be glorified. He says, verse 11, 
Beloved, I urge you, I beg you, I earnestly plead with you regarding these things. Listen to me. As aliens, as strangers, as foreigners, as temporary residents. And that brings us to our our first point this morning. How we are to carry out the call of being faithful witnesses so that God may be glorified. Reading verse 11 and we, we see foreigners and temporary residents or aliens and strangers, as your Bible might have. Um, it's easy to think back to, to chapter 1 where, people, where Peter is, is addressing who they are. And in a sense, that's what he is doing. But that's not what Peter's intention is here in this verse. He's not reminding them of what they are, but rather how they are to behave. They are to be, and we are to be today, as foreigners and temporary residents. You know what these, these concepts remind us of? What they should remind us of? This earth is not our home. This is not our forever home. As Christians, we ought not to live expecting that this is going to be heaven's on earth, heaven on earth here. It's not God's intent for us. We are anticipating another day. We are simply here in this moment to accomplish what God would have us do. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You know, either you're going to be a stranger, an alien here, and a citizen of God's kingdom, or you're going to be right at home here and you're going to be an alien and stranger to God's kingdom. Think about that. The construction in the Greek here, it's emphatic. Beloved, I urge you, I plead with you, live as though you have a different purpose. Live as though you have a different standard of living, detached from the things of this world. You must live this way, you must act this way, you must live in light of these things because this world is not your home. Foreigners or aliens, it carries with it the idea of, of living in a foreign land in a sense that this is not our true home. And temporary residence, that carries with it the idea that we are a foreign people and we are living in this world only for a brief time so we can be detached completely from worldly things. But a warning comes with this. Behaving in this way, it can be so easy to be prideful of these things. It can be so easy to be arrogant and be like, yep, look at me. I'm a part of God's kingdom, living here as a temporary resident. Guard yourselves against that kind of pride. But in saying that, can you imagine how different some of life's circumstances would be if we lived this way? He called me a name. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm a foreigner and temporary resident. My colleagues at work, they don't like me. I'm a foreigner, temporary resident. My house burnt down and I lost everything I own. Foreigner, temporary resident. My baby or a loved one has died. I'm a foreigner and a temporary resident. Do you get the idea? Life must reflect these concepts. But it's not only enough To live this way, as Peter mentioned a while ago, a hermit or a monk can live in this way, removed from the world. 
But we as believers have a responsibility. And that brings us into our second point. What we are to do to fulfill the call. That is what we are to do to, in order that we are faithful witnesses to unbelievers. He says, You are to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. See, we have this twofold charge here. We have a negative inward and then a positive outward charge. Fleshly lusts versus good deeds. One the world can't see and the other the world can. Victory in the war against fleshly lusts is not manifested in a mere negative or defensive stance of abstinence, but also in a positive or offensive visible fruit of goodness. Abstinence is one thing, but there must also be this outward visible fruit in your life. But first, we'll look at abstaining from the lusts of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You know, it seems somewhat familiar. Peter's already kind of talked about this way back in chapter 1, where he's, he's talking about, be holy for I am holy. But he revisits it here because it's so important. He reminds us, first of all, that there is a war which wages on inside our, inside our soul. Do you know that? Do you understand that there's a war going on inside you right now? There is this element in your life, this unredeemed flesh, if you like, that battles against your soul. Every Christian faces this reality. And if, you're not, if you don't face this reality in your heart, there's something wrong because it's a reality. This unredeemed part of us, it wants to be sinful. It wants to be selfish. Now, how quick and easy is it to become selfish and to think of, think of yourself more highly than others? Like, just a moment of time. Somebody says something unkind towards you. Somebody leaves something for you to clean that they should have cleaned themselves. These are illustrations from this week, by the way. <laughs> Somebody pulls out in front of you in traffic. This is legitimately a battle which rages on inside of us on a daily basis. You know, when we're in the the midst of some of the great challenges of life, it can be pretty easy to justify selfishness. I hurt. This is hard. I don't know what to do. When will this end? And these kind of emotions, they can all foster a selfishness. But Peter says, even in the difficulties of life, you need to keep away from fleshly lusts. 1 Corinthians 3.3 3 says, For you are still fleshly, for since there is still jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? The point he's making here is if you're in Christ, you're not supposed to walk like a mere man. You are not, it's not that you're not a human, but it's that you're a new person in Christ and you have a different perspective in the way that you live your life. This topic or, or, of desires or, or lusts of the flesh, it's one that, that runs throughout Scripture, as I'm sure many of us understand and where better place to to gain some illustration um and as i go through these these following verses just don't have to turn with me there but um, just listen in as as i walk through mark chapter 4 verse 19 he talks about you know when the the seed is sown and 
and people have that initial response to the gospel, it says, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Those desires, those, those lusts, if you have truly repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then those desires are not for the things of this flesh anymore. They are for God. And whatever God does in our life and through our life for that purpose, it is good because he knows better than us. Romans 6, verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives... He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Then verse 12, Therefore, do not let your sin reign in your mortal body, that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to be sin- as, as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, the members as your instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. Amen. Because of what Christ has accomplished on our cross, our whole focus on life and eternity is completely different to the unbeliever. Romans thirteen fourteen says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. You see, if you find your mind thinking that way, if you find your mind thinking towards the flesh, it says you ought to put on Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.24 says, Now those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. You know how brutal that is? Crucify. You recognize sinful action in your life? You don't justify it. You hate it. Any sinful tendencies that might come up in your life, you hate them to the core. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogance, every evil way, the perverted mouth. I hate them. Ephesians 4.17 and onwards says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed by the spirit of your mind and put on a new self, which is the likeness of God that has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. One Timothy six nine, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. You know, sometimes the things on the earth we want so bad that we have total disregard for God's plan. 2 Timothy 2.22 For young people, flee from youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's not only a, for young people, I guess. It doesn't matter how old you are. We can still suffer with youthful lusts, right? 
You know, if you read the same Bible I read, if you're in Christ, you need to hang on. Because God will take you down roads for His glory. It may be extraordinarily painful. And the reality of that is that as you go down those difficult roads and remain faithful to the God that you say you love, your testimony demonstrates the integrity of a faith that God uses to change the world. The whole idea is, as Christians, we don't have this happy-go, loving life kind of, kind of walk. God takes us down difficult roads so that people may see the truth of the gospel lived out in our lives. 1 John 2, 16 and 17 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God will live forever. We don't fit in here, folks. We have a war which rages on inside our soul, and we need to be so careful to abstain from the lust of this flesh. And understand too, this battle is going to go on and needs to be fought daily for the rest of our lives. We are supposed to stay the course and know that God can provide the resources we need to walk in a manner that pleases Him daily. Now we have the positive, yes, we put off the lust of the flesh, but not only that, we are to put on excellent behaviour or good conduct. What does our text say? It says, keep your conduct or behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Galatians 5.15 says, but I walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You know, far too many people think that biblical Christianity is just about not doing bad things. You know how false that is? Yes, we don't do bad things. We put off sin, but we also put on righteousness. That is the mark of a true believer. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things of this earth. You walk by the Spirit. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? That's a discipline. That takes hard work. That just doesn't happen. We are to discipline ourselves to do these things, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't walk with Christ faithfully in some kind of casual pattern of life. It doesn't work. God intends that our lives are consumed with knowing Him and walking with Him. And the fruit of that will be good deeds before men. A couple of things I just want to, to mention about this good conduct. First, notice the order of this in relation to the inward abstinence. Abstain from fleshly lust and then keep your behaviour excellent. wonder why that's significant. Without a proper inward abstinence, whether you like it or not, eventually there will be external turmoil. Luke 6.45, from the heart the mouth speaks. In other words, if you're not a Christian, but you're behaving like one, no matter how clever you are, your lie will eventually find you out. If your inward heart is not putting off the sin, there will be ultimately no demonstration of excellent behaviour. And anyways, it would all be meaningless because the moment you pass on to the next world, you're going to spend an eternity in hell. All your good deeds count for nothing. But if there is a right relationship with Christ, if there is a sense of putting off of the flesh, putting off of sin, good fruit will be a demonstration of that going on in your life. Secondly, 
Notice what would happen here if we took these, these verses out of context. It can be easy to do that. So many of us can just be reading something. Oh, yeah, is that what that means? Oh, yeah. But when we read this text in context of the whole of First Peter, it gives us a correct method for evangelism. Ever heard of the social gospel movement? Sounds kind of good. It's got the word gospel in it. But really, it's such a, a false, heretical movement. It's a movement that's kind of all about changing society by good deeds, about equality. This is interesting. They see the death of Christ as just a good deed. He died for us as just a good deed. And then we are supposed to follow these good deeds to the, and, and demonstrate that to the world. The core message of the gospel, the redemption that is found in Christ, gets put to the side and the main message becomes mere deeds and transforming society by the way we live. And what goes with that is this post-mill eschatological position where they think the church is ushered in by a changing society. And this is wrong. Yes, we are not supposed to be removed from society. It says, be among the Gentiles. But what's our context? What did we look at before? The motivation for our evangelism is our salvation. It is our relationship with God. It is to glorify God. That's the drive of our evangelism. Jesus came and he had a what? He had a message to proclaim. Then he lived the life that backed up that message. Doing good deeds is awesome, but unless they're motivated by the gospel, you're acting out of your own strength and you're not evangelizing, the way that the scriptures would say. Context is important, folks. Abstain from fleshly lusts, put on excellent behavior, And finally, our third point today, here's why Peter says we can live as foreigners and temporary residents. Here's why he says we can put off sinful desires and put on good conduct. End of verse 12. So that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, by seeing your good deeds, they may glorify God in the day of visitation. Again, here we have this evangelistic element of of the passages of the, of the passage. Now you're a true believer. Now you've put off the things that, that would be an offense to God and we have determined to keep our behavior excellent. We are to conduct ourselves in such a way that among the Gentiles, among the unsaved, they might see our good deeds and in turn glorify God. The idea is that we are developing this pattern of life that demonstrates faithful obedience to God faithful obedience to God, that we might be the appropriate testimony to the unsaved. Keep in mind, Peter has just addressed previously in in verses 4 and 5 the idea of Jesus as the living stone and that people are going to reject him. And because of that rejection, they're going to face eternal consequences. And Peter's passionate about this. He wants believers to understand the privilege that you and I have of being a part of God's plan to be witnesses to the unsaved world. And the way that we are to do that is to abstain from fleshly lusts and then to walk in such a way that our behaviour is excellent among the Gentiles, among the unsaved, that ultimately they might come to faith. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Let no one look down upon your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith and purity, show yourselves as an example to those who believe. 
James 3.13 Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behaviour and his good deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. And we've considered 1 Peter 1.15 But like the Holy One who has called you, be holy for I am holy. Think about this verse for a second. These people are facing intense persecution and Peter says, don't fall into sinful temptations. Yeah, when things are going bad, you know how easy it is to fall into sinful temptations? It's easy to have this get-even kind of mentality with one another. It's pretty easy to think poorly or, or ugly in return, evil for evil kind of thing. But Peter's saying, don't fall into that sinful behavior. Keep your behavior excellent. Why? So that these unsaved people, even though they slander you, even though they mock you as you strive to live a life for God's glory, even though they give you unceasing grief in this life, even though they do all these things, do not lose your focus in Christ. You want one day for these people to see your good deeds and glorify God in turn. As a discipline. How am I going to honour God today? We need to keep in mind the ministry that God has established within us to the unbelieving world. We can't lose sight of the unbelievers that are around us everywhere. Everywhere. We can't get so focused on ourselves that we fail to keep our eyes open. We must be busy doing what God would have us do, regardless of the complexity of our own life or the challenges that we face. The idea that the unbeliever, even though they're mocking you, whether it be in your workplace, in your neighbourhood, even family members, whatever it is, your behaviour is excellent so that when they give you lots of grief, you can continue to be a faithful testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and be a demonstration of the gospel to them in living colour. Matthew 5 16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are not in this life for our own personal pleasures. We are here because God has designed it to be so. We have many delights in this life. God has given us many things to enjoy. But our greatest delight is in Him and Him alone. And in doing so, we are to be a faithful witness to the unsaved world. You want to live in such a way that even if the unsaved might not like you, they might continue to see a consistent biblical testimony knowing that God and God alone has the ability to open eyes and he might use your testimony as part of his eternal work. As I've contemplated these verses this week, firstly, I couldn't help but think, what a blessing it is to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, that that Christ would even think to save us. And then secondly, that he would use us in his eternal plan to bring people to the kingdom. How much of a blessing is that? How much of a responsibility is that? Secondly, we are to have a heart for the unsaved, just as Peter did. You know, just think about this for a second. If you took the worst trials of your life, 
all your life, the worst trials you could ever face, the worst trials I could ever face, you put them into one little package and that was the essence of your life, pure suffering, you know that wouldn't even begin to compare for a moment to the suffering that an unbeliever will face in hell? Think about that. Think about that kind of suffering. The person who rejects Christ will ultimately be damned and separated from God and pay the price for their own sin for all of eternity. The worst trials you could think of wouldn't even come close to that. God has given me hope. He's redeemed me. He's saved my soul. And many of us can say the same things. He's given us hope. God has given us a purpose in life. And the fact that he takes us down difficult roads for the sake of unbelievers... You think you're going through a tough circumstance? Think about them in eternity. They're going to be paying the price for their sin. We must not lose sight of what this life is all about. After all, Jesus, after he arose from the dead, what did he tell the disciples? You are to be my witnesses to the world. 2 Corinthians 5, what does it say? He says, you're my ambassadors. You are to represent me. You are here for the express purpose of begging people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. 1 Peter makes it pretty clear that it's our duty to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness. You know, even if unbelievers are opposing you or, or hate you, if you're in the midst of the greatest trial of your life, do not lose sight of the ministry that God has given you and the opportunity that you have to serve them. Don't get caught up in the sinful stuff of life. Or lose sight of the privilege you have to live out the faith, the truth of the gospel for the sake of those unbelievers around you who, even though they might despise you, you know that the Lord can use your testimony as part of his eternal plan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, hearts humbled as we as we read your word, study your word. Lord, we, we thank you. We, we praise you, Lord, for you did not have to save us. But Lord, by your grace we stand. By, your, by the blood of Christ we can have newness of life, Lord. Let us walk in that always. Let us keep that at the forefront of our minds, Lord. That in doing so, in living a life that pleases you, we might be a faithful witness, a faithful testimony, Lord. The gospel in living colour, to those who are around us. We pray these things in your precious, holy, wonderful name now. Amen.